Last week in our study through the book of Acts, uh, we observed together a model sermon preached by the Apostle Peter, the first sermon in the history of the church uh, after he had received the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And this morning, we'll turn our attention from the model sermon to a model church. If I asked you today to give me a description of the model church, the ideal church, what would be its defining characteristics for you? Some of you traditionalists might suggest that for starters, we need to bring back the organ and the choir robes and the pews and the hymnals. Others might say we need to hip it up a bit. I don't know if you noticed the three hymns that we opened with just now uh, were written in 1875, 1865, and 1787. Some of you might be thinking, can we sing something from the last century and a half, please? Um, Some of you might think that there's no reason that any sermon ever should be more than three points and last more than 20 minutes. Uh, Others of you, the real Christians, uh, are, you're just getting warmed up when I'm 40 minutes in and I'm starting to wrap up. Um, Some of you might wish that we could enfold our kids more into the overall life of the church on Sundays. Other parents uh, have offered to fund a water slide down in the Doxa. Anything we need to do to keep your kids happy down there for as long as possible on Sundays. But as we're going to see this morning, the true marks, the biblical marks of a healthy model church have much less to do with style of worship or length of sermon or philosophy of kids ministry. They cut much deeper than that. The early church of Acts exemplifies for us six defining traits of a model church. I did cheat on the sixth one. I combined eight traits into one bullet point, as you'll see in your bulletins. It's not a three-point sermon, but six is closer than 14, so just combine those. Uh, But we're going to pick the story back up in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, together, Peter You'll recall has just addressed the crowd of these Jewish pilgrims gathered in Jerusalem who are all struck by this group of 120 Galileans, uneducated, somehow able to speak in their native tongues. And Peter explains that this was God's fulfillment of his promise through the prophet Joel to fill his people with his spirit so that they might proclaim the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the risen Savior, Messiah, to all nations. And so Peter concluded last week by calling on all his listeners to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you too will receive this gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so we will pick the story up there in verse 40, and I'd invite you to stand with me as you're able uh, respect for the reading of God's word, if you are able. And we will read Acts 2, verses 40 to 47, as well as we're going to tag on the end of chapter 4, verses 32 to 35, a very similar description to what we find at the end of chapter 2. And so I thought I'd go ahead and wrap that in together, this picture that Acts paints for us of the model church. Hear the word of the Lord. And with many other words, Peter bore witness 
and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, the full number, chapter 4, verse 32, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. We'll stop there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again this morning for your word. We thank you for this record, this picture that it gives us, exemplifies for us of what the model church can and should look like. Father, I'm grateful, we're grateful for this church, our church here at West Hills. We're thankful for the ways in which we also embody to differing degrees these attributes of a biblical, healthy model church. And yet, Father, there are other ways in which we need to be challenged and, and convicted this morning and continue to grow in our love for you, love for one another, and our love for the world and service to the world missionally. And so, Father, I pray, we pray this morning as your church, would you use your word now as we submit ourselves under its authority, would you use your word, the power of your word and the power of your spirit to change us, to transform us, to mold us more into the image of Jesus, that we might be the church that you died to redeem, to purchase for yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Six qualities of model biblical church. Number one, first and foremost, the church receives God's word. Acts 4.33, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the gospel. That's the foundation. Chapter 2, verse 40, and with many other words, Peter bore witness, and those who received his word were baptized and added to the church. And so the church, again, first and foremost, must be built upon, founded on the word of God, the apostolic witness to the truth of what God has spoken to his people in history. As we sang this morning, how firm a foundation 
you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. The Bible was God's word spoken through God's appointed messengers, the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles. Ephesians 2.20 specifies that the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Peter will put it even more plainly in his second epistle that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the holy spirit that's what scripture is it's God's word through men for God's people so the model church then must start by receiving the scriptures the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments as what they are, not the prophecies of men, not someone's mere interpretation of God's thoughts and feelings, but rather as divinely inspired and thus inerrant and unfailing, unchanging word of God, men speaking in the Spirit on behalf of God himself. Second Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's his word. Any church that doesn't, any church that, that abdicates the Bible as the divinely inspired word of God, not only fails to be a model church, it ceases to be a church in any meaningful sense of the term. So we're all, all too familiar. This is, we know, sadly, this is the story of so many mainline churches in this country over the past 50 plus years now, United Methodist, Episcopal, PCUSA, ELCA, UCC, DOC, the list and the abbreviations, they go on and on. But any church that compromises on the integrity, the authority, and the inspiration of Scripture, first of all, resigns itself practically to a slow and painful death because the congregation understandably stops coming. Frankly, Look, if, if this is not the word of God, if Sundays are just me, Pastor Will, sharing some reflections with you, you should save yourselves the trip and stay home. My words are not worth the trip. God's word is worth the trip every Sunday. You should be here every Sunday if it's his word. But, but no wonder people don't show up. But more significantly and spiritually in God's eyes, church that abdicates scripture as his word is no longer a church at all. Ephesians 2 already defined the church as built on the foundation of the apostles' testimony as recorded in holy scripture. So this idea of, of deconstructing your faith has become popular recently. In reality, it's been popular ever since Genesis 3. Uh, that's what Satan was doing with Eve when he got her to question whether or not, did God really say that you shouldn't eat the fruit? That's the question at the root of all deconstruction. Did God really say? Are you really going to receive God's word as God's word? The Bible is God's word. Even when it calls homosexuality a sin. Even when it says that there's a difference between men and women. Go figure. Even when it says that most people will spend an eternity in hell really uncomfortable, inconvenient truths. 
to reckon with in the 21st century. Look, if it's really God's word, shouldn't we expect it to offend us in some places? Like, if God is really holy and we're sinful, and there's a vast chasm between us, as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, says the Lord, shouldn't we expect him to say some stuff that we wouldn't say if it was our word, if we were writing it? But when, by faith, you come to simply, in humility, receive the Bible as God's word, then like the church in Acts 2, you will continually devote yourself to the apostles' teaching. Let me offer you a few questions for personal application with each of these six points this morning. Number one, have you received the Bible as God's word? That's what it is. Have you personally received the gospel that it declares Christ crucified and raised for the forgiveness of your sins. Have you received that? Have you received God's word personally? If so, praise God. Now, are you continually devoting yourself to God's word? That's that's the, the sense of the Greek that's being used here, continually devoting themselves to God's word. Do you treasure God's word above all else? Does your passion for, your consumption of, your adherence to the Bible, does it all testify to the Bible status as being nothing less than the very words of God for you? To To paraphrase Billy Graham, if you were on trial for believing that the Bible was God's word, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Or does it honestly kind of bore you? And that's why it collects dust on the shelf. The church, above all else, must receive the Bible for what it is, the very word of God. Number two, the model church repents, is baptized, and it unites. The church is filled with those who have repented, who have turned from their sin to the Lord been baptized, been united with him, with Christ, by faith, through baptism, and who have thus been united with one another as well by joining the church so they can continue to grow in Christ together through mutual sanctification. This is what the church is. Verse 41, so those who received Peter's word, his call to repent and be baptized, they were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Kent Hughes explains, for a first century Jew, baptism was a traumatic step. In Jewish culture, baptism was a rite of passage for Gentile converts into Judaism that symbolized a radical break with one's past. But now, these Jewish converts are being asked, expected to convert to Christianity and symbolically leave behind the Judaism they grew up with all for the sake of Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. And that baptism serves as a rite of passage, not only into new relationship with the Lord, but into the church. They joined the church. There was none of this wishy-washy, non-committal, serial dating, complex, church shopping phenomenon that plagues the 21st century American church. They didn't watch sermons online for six months to feel it out and then attend in person for another six months. 
and then start volunteering and checking out a life group for another six months and then take the membership class and pray on it for another six months. They just joined. They found a gospel-centered, Bible-preaching, God-and-others-loving church, and they joined. They knew that being an active, contributing member of the body of Christ was too essential to their faith not to join. They didn't wait for the perfect church to come along because they knew there was no such thing. And even if there was, if they joined it, they'd ruin it with their sin. And so they just joined. A few important personal application questions then. Number one, first and foremost, have you repented? Have you turned from your sin to Jesus in faith for your salvation? That's most important. Number two, have you been baptized as a symbol of your new life in Christ? And number three, have you been united with other believers by joining the church, both for your own spiritual health and growth, as well as for our collective witness and ministry to the world as a church? I was so encouraged to see the 31 of you who uh, attended our membership class just last week. God willing, we will be officially welcoming Many of you into the West Hills family in the weeks to come. Family brings us to point number three. The church relates to one another as a spiritual family. That's what we are when we are united by faith with Christ. Again, we're not only adopted into a new relationship with God, our heavenly father, but we're also adopted into a new family, his family of faith. That's what the church is. That's why believers all through the New Testament... Call one another brother and sister. That's why I call you, you all that. Um, we now belong to the same spiritual family. And that means we're reunited in three important ways uh, that get outlined here in chapter 2, verse 42. We hear they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which we covered, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. So you've got relational unity, fellowship, physical unity, breaking of bread, or eating together in one another's homes, physical proximity, and then spiritual unity, the prayers. So first of all, the church shares relational unity. Chapter 4, verse 32 says, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were intimately connected to one another, knit together. Chapter 2, verse 42, uses this word fellowship, which we have cheapened in the church over the last 2,000 years. And so we need to try and recover the biblical connotation this morning, the Greek word koinonia. It means commonality. Now think about that for a minute. You've got 3,120 believers now in this first century church from at least 16 different named ethnes listed at the beginning of Acts 2. You've got Jews and proselytes, men and women, slave and free, and yet the word that Luke chooses to describe this seemingly hodgepodge, random assortment of people is koinonia, it's commonality. They could barely even speak to one another understand one another, and yet Luke uses this word common. How, how, how in the world, what in the world could they possibly share in common? Just one thing, the Holy Spirit. 
They share the unity of the Spirit because of their common confession of Jesus as Lord and Savior. A fun fact, koinonia, the word doesn't even show up in the Bible until here in Acts chapter 2 because it wasn't even possible until the Holy Spirit descended and united the church. Our fellowship is, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And what we need to appreciate this morning, brothers and sisters, is that the unity that we now share in the Spirit is stronger than any other force in the world that would seek to divide us. That must be true of the church. Tony Merida puts it this way. He says, the source of our unity isn't our common affinities, it's our gospel identity. And the gospel that unites us is stronger than all the other identity markers that the world would use to otherwise divide us. You know, the world loves to play identity politics, you know, to define us by race, gender, politics, education, socioeconomic status, so it can pit us against one another. I think that that's one of the reasons why God made sure that there were so many people of every conceivable race and nationality, religious past, social status, all here at Pentecost, not only to prove that the gospel is truly for all people, but to prove that the only glue, adhesive, that can bond a community like this one in Acts 2 together, in koinonia, and commonality, the only glue that can hold a church like West Hills together Whites and blacks, young and old, rich and poor, Republicans, Democrats, nerds, jocks. The glue has got to be stronger than all those other factors combined. And the only glue that is that strong is our shared identity in Christ. Fellowship is not just a warm and fuzzy feeling. It's not just punch and cookies after the service, it's not just pickleball tournaments. Real biblical fellowship means a radical reorientation of our identity and a radical renunciation of our personal preferences for the sake of our unity in Christ. Now, unity does not mean uniformity. If we were all the same, there would be no need for unity because it's easy, it's natural, it's even biological to hang out with folks who look and talk and think and vote like you do. Everyone does, even the demons do that. What makes the church the church is not our uniformity, but rather our unity despite our diversity. The fact that I can be relationally closer, koinonia, with a poor, black, same-sex attracted, Biden-supporting woman that I am with another upper-middle-class, straight, white, male, classical Republican if she's a believer and he's not. That is countercultural. The world with its identity politics can't make sense of that. It says you've got, he checks more boxes than she does. The gospel says it, it trumps every other identity marker. And that's a jarring countercultural witness to the power of the gospel to unite God's people. By contrast, when we insist that the church endorse our political candidate, enforce our preferred mask and vaccine policy, champion our pet second and third tier theological issues, 
well, I can only worship at a church where everyone is a reformed, cessationist, complementarian, credo-baptist, dispensationalist, and we show the world that we in the church really aren't any different from them at all. We just live in a more self-righteous echo chamber. Daryl Bach notes that the word koinonia was often used in antiquity of the type of mutuality that takes place in marriage. Mutuality, commonality, and marriage is a good analogy. You know, Polly and I counsel every, every couple that we do premarital counseling with <clears throat> that the number one thing you can do to ensure a healthy, growing, unified marriage is to pursue the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because if I'm chasing after the Lord with all my mind, heart, soul, and strength, and she's chasing after the Lord, then God is one, right? Deuteronomy 6.4. And so if we're both pursuing him, we are necessarily growing together. That is the key to koinonia and the church as well. How we keep growing in relational intimacy as a spiritual family, as a church, we share a common pursuit of Christ. Remember Jesus' final prayer for his church in John 17, Father, I ask for those who will believe in me that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's our witness, once again, so that the world may believe. And plus, it's just nice to have friends, isn't it? It's part of our witness, but it's nice. It's good to share relational intimacy with not only family, but friends. You know, family, you don't get to choose, right? You're just born with them. You're stuck with them. My mom was here this morning. I said, no offense, mom, but I would choose my mom anyway. But, you know, family, you don't, you don't get to choose. Friends are the folks you enjoy. And as your pastor, I can tell you, I love y'all. I love this church. I love all 350 plus of, of, of y'all that I have the pleasure of knowing here at West Hills. But I shouldn't be the only person who gets that pleasure. We've got some truly wonderful folks here at this church. You should do yourself a favor and you should get to know them. They're all, every single one of you is worth getting to know. I mean that. And a great way to do that, point 3B, is around the dinner table. They devoted themselves to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. Nothing brings people together quite like food, does it? So if you're going to have your Super Bowl parties next week, if you don't serve food, who's coming? Who's staying? Who's staying past the first quarter, right? Food brings us together. That's why the perfect unity we look forward to one day sharing together in heaven is depicted in Revelation 19.7, not just as all God's people gathered around his throne, but were gathered around his table, the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, they say the family that prays together stays together. We'll get to that in point 3C in a moment. But it's also true that the family who eats together stays together. We need to get 
in one another's houses, in one another's physical spaces, break bread together as a church. Conversely, you can't share relational unity with someone you don't share physical unity with, you're not rubbing shoulders with. There will be no relational intimacy. That's why there's no such thing as virtual church. It's a contradiction of terms as we have learned the hard way over the past two years. Church is not an event you watch, it's a people you are with. Even the word church, Greek, ekklesia, it means gathering, a physical gathering, an assembly of people. So we need to get back to that here at West Hills. If you're still joining via live stream, we're cutting the live stream soon. It's not church. You need to be with the church. Finally, 3C. They devoted themselves to the prayers. They, they shared spiritual unity. Corporate prayer is such an interesting thing. You can only pray with someone that you're spiritually unified with. If you notice that, if you notice that in, in, in group prayer settings, when someone else is praying, you are doing one of three things. Either you're tuning them out, because honestly it can be hard to, you know, listen and, and track along. Or number two, you're tuned in, but you're just passively listening. They're praying, they're talking to God, and you're listening to them do it. It's not prayer. It's not praying with them. Number three, you're actively praying alongside them. You're agreeing with them, one heart and spirit, as they're praying. You're praying together. By the way, that's what the word amen means. I agree, truly. It's like what, what she said, I mean it too. But you can only do that. You can only pray with someone if you're spiritually united. Have you ever been praying with someone who starts praying stuff you don't agree with? It's awkward, right? Like, do I start praying against what, not what she said, God, not amen. I don't agree with that. But most of the time, most of the time, prayer is a spiritually unifying experience. We are lifting up our shared hearts and souls to the Lord. You probably noticed it's very hard to stay mad at someone you're praying with, isn't it? As we grow toward the Lord together, we get closer to one another, koinonia. Personal application, do you share relational unity with the church? Do you know one another? So many of you come up to me on Sundays recently and, and, and you share with your excitement, that, hey, there are so many new faces at the church. I've started responding. It sounds like you've got your work cut out for you. A lot of new, new family members you need to meet. If we're really going to be spiritual family, you can't, you can't be strangers with someone in your own family, can you? Shouldn't. Meet someone new every Sunday. Physical unity, great way to do it. When was the last time you broke bread with someone new to the church, brother, sister, in Christ? Physical unity. And lastly, spiritual unity. Who are you praying for here at, at, at West Hills? Who are you praying with regularly? West Hills. Psalm 133.1 declares how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is good and pleasing to the Lord when his children dwell together in unity. Every parent knows this. There's nothing better than watching your kids love one another well. Number four, 
a model church reveals God's power. Chapter 2, verse 43. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Chapter 4, verse 33. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony. Now, power, signs, and wonders. For the sake of time, I want to save our discussion of signs and wonders for next week, chapter 3, give you a little teaser this morning. But suffice it to say that whatever you think about signs and wonders, miracles, the existence of these things in the church today, there can be no debate that God was working nothing short of the supernatural in and through his church in the book of Acts. And moreover, there's no question why God performed these signs. It was his validation of his gospel message that the apostles were preaching through the demonstration of God's power at work within them. That was the purpose. All 30 miracles that we find in the book of Acts performed, allowed, empowered by God for the express purpose of confirming the truth of the gospel that Jesus really does have this power to raise us to new life. And so I'm going I'm to leave, kind of leave that point hanging there for now, but I would simply invite you, ask you this personal application question as a preview for next week. When was the last time that you said or did something that was so unlike you in a good way, in a God way, that others around you were forced to ask the question, how, why did she just do that? And by what power did he just say that, do that? It's forgiving somebody. It's giving up your Saturday to serve somebody. Maybe you haven't performed any miracles lately. But the same Holy Spirit power that lived in these apostles now lives inside you and inside me. God's word is clear. The spirit is there so that we might reveal God's power to those who need, desperately need to see Jesus in and through us. That's Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before others. Let God's light shine through you to others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's what God created us for, by the way. Ephesians 2.10, created for good works. We're created to be little image bearers, images of God reflecting God's glory, shining his light to others. When was the last time you did that? You, you forced someone to say that. That's, the old Will Duvall wouldn't have, wouldn't have done that. The old Cordell Shulton wouldn't have said that, you know. May that be said of us, church. Number five, the model church rations its resources. Now, this one probably strikes us as the most extreme, even controversial, mark of the early church, but that's just because we're so materialistic and so individualistic. All of these marks, these six marks, are, are radical. They're all 
supernatural. They're marks of the Holy Spirit at work in the, and through the church. Some just look and feel more extreme to others because they're convicting. But we do need to note a few things about what their resource rationing here was and what it wasn't. For starters, it wasn't universal. They didn't share their stuff with everyone in Jerusalem. Chapter 2, verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. So belief in Jesus was the prerequisite for joining the church and thus benefiting from the community needs fund, just like it is here at West Hills. 1 Timothy 5, 8, you've got to take care of your own family first before you can even think about going and providing for those outside the family, spiritual family in this case. Secondly, selling all your stuff was not a prerequisite of joining the church. Daryl Bach explains the imperfect verb here, we're bringing the present participle, we're selling. It suggests a gradual liquidation of assets as people needed, had need, not selling everything all at once. After all, in verse 46, we hear that they're eating in one another's homes, so at least some of them were allowed to keep their houses. Couldn't all be homeless. That doesn't help anybody. But if the choice was, I'm going to hang on to my stuff while a brother, a sister goes hungry, or I guess I'm selling the house, moving in the, with the in-laws so that I can help feed a, a hungry church member, then that's what you do. Because if koinonia suggests the same mutuality as marriage, think about that. Think about the biblical picture of marriage. It's two become one, right? Two become one. Me and Polly. That's not just about sex, physical intimacy. That's about finances. Two bank accounts become one. What's mine is hers. What's hers is mine. I think about that as a picture of the church. That's What's Dawn's is mine, what's mine is Dawn's. What's Brian's is mine, what's mine is Brian's. This is what you agree to when you join the church. If that sounds radical, it's because it is. The world doesn't operate like this. Can you imagine if the government operated like that? I mean, you can. It's called communism. Let's go ahead and get that out of the way. This is not communism. R.C. Sproul explains... Everyone who has ever argued the case for communism has used these verses to support it for obvious reasons, but distinctly absent from this description is government, either secular or ecclesiastical. You don't hear anything about even the apostles, you know, twisting arms, forcing people at the, the point of the sword to share their stuff. It was completely voluntary. No one is enforcing it other than maybe God himself, you could say. We're going to get to that in a few weeks. Acts chapter 5, God kills Ananias and Sapphira for holding the resources back. I imagine that would compel most of them to continue sharing as they're supposed to. But there's no human enforcement. Hughes different, uh, Kent Hughes further different, makes the differentiation here. Communism says what's yours is everyone's. Christianity says what's mine is yours. It's not compulsory. It's not someone else telling you what to do for everyone. It's me saying I'm laying down what's mine for 
you personally, voluntarily, willingly. Again, if it seems radical, that's because it is. The early church was marked by radical generosity. And just like their relational unity, their koinonia, this material unity, financial unity, this sharing of resources was yet another powerful countercultural witness. I want you to listen to a century later. In AD 125, the emperor Hadrian wanted an explanation for why this still relatively newer but growing religion, Christianity, was spreading so quickly. And here is the report sent back to him by a, a Roman named Aristides. He says, If one of them has servants through love toward them, they persuade them to become Christians. It's not how people treat their servants. You order them. Through love, they persuade them. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them. And they love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And whenever one of their poor passes from this world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, then they pull their resources to set him free, pay his, pay his bail. And if there is any among them that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast for two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Friends, this is the church. That's, that's what a, a model church looks like through the lens of a pagan who has no, no way of making sense of a community like this. It's countercultural in every time and place. Today, just as much as 2,000 years ago. Again, it's, it's remarkable. It's really amazing when you think about how we get by here today financially as a church. Can you imagine? Forget communism. Can you imagine if the government said, you know what? Everyone, just pay what you want in taxes this year. Uh, just whatever is on your heart to, to give. 10% is a good kind of rule of thumb, um, default. But whatever, whatever you feel led to, to give in taxes this year. And yet that's exactly how we operate as a church. And the Lord provides because the Lord fills you with his spirit of generosity. The people of West Hills give richly because you know how much you've been so richly given in Christ. And as your pastor, I'm so grateful that this church is so generous, that we don't have to twist arms. There's no ecclesiastical enforcement of the sharing of, of resources. People ask me all the time in membership you know, interviews, it's like a minimum. I know it says I agree to support the ministry of the church with my finances. It's like a minimum there or 
Do you have to make a certain amount, give a certain amount? No. Be generous. God loves a cheerful giver. Lastly, we'll do these rapid fire, finish with a flurry. Eight traits and one bullet point. The model church responds to the grace that she has been given in Christ with public, personal, grateful, generous, reverent, reputable, evangelistic, expanding faith. All eight qualities are found right here in chapter 2, verses 46 through 47. You've got four sets of corresponding, contrasting pairs. First, our faith, we'll go through them one at a time, don't worry. First, our faith is both public and personal, two at a time. It's public. We hear the church was attending the temple together. That corresponds today to our corporate worship here on Sundays together. But it's also personal. Very next line, they were breaking bread in their homes. That corresponds to our life groups, our discipleship groups throughout the week. But notice, in neither case is their faith private. It may be personal. It must be personal. You must have a personal relationship with Jesus, or none of this works. But Christianity is never private. It's a team sport. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian, a Christian without a church. It's like saying, oh, yeah, I, I play football. What team? Oh, I don't have a team. It's a team sport. Christianity is a team sport. The church is the team. Second, their faith is both grateful and generous. They received their food with glad hearts. They were grateful, but they were also generous. They had generous hearts. If gratitude is being thankful for what you've received, then generosity is being joyful with how you give. And so the model church must be both. The model church knows how to give and receive well. Thirdly, their faith was both reverent and reputable. They were reverent to the Lord. They were worshipful. Verse 47, they were praising God vertical relationship, but they also knew in order to be effective witnesses for him in the surrounding society, they had to have an eye to their reputation. How were they thought of? And so we hear they had favor with all the people. Again, we focused most of this message, as the text does, on the church's inward relationships with one another as a community, spiritual family, koinonia. But here at the end, Luke reminds us of the, the utmost importance of that vertical upward relationship with God as well as our outward relationships missionally to the world. That's our church's mission statement here, right? Three directions, upward, inward, outward, growing in Spiritual maturity as disciples of Christ, vertical relationship. We're growing together as a spiritual family and living an authentic community inward. And we're growing in love and service missionally to the world outward. All three. Finally, theirs was both similarly evangelistic as well as expanding faith. The early church was marked as much as anything, 
by growth. This was a growing, a rapidly expanding community. They started, remember, with 120. After one service, one sermon, that became 3,120. Not bad, not a bad altar call. And now, by the end of chapter 2, we hear that the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. We don't even know what the count is anymore. Every single day, the church is growing because the church is a living organism. It's described in the New Testament as the body of Christ. And healthy bodies grow. Healthy bodies, healthy living things grow. But how does the church grow? We grow through evangelism. Again, seems at first like there's a tension there. Evangelism is what we do outside the walls of the church, right? With outsiders. But here, we hear about the Lord building his church, as he promised to back in Matthew 16, internally. So we might ask, which is it? Shall we be focused with going outward or with growing inward? And once again, the answer is both. Churches that are only focused inward become self-serving and shrivel up and die. And we see, we've seen that with a few of our life groups over the years. The, the life groups that, that stop inviting, welcoming new people and then multiplying and growing as, as they need to. They become inward and same eight people meeting in a holy huddle for years and years and years. Put them out to pasture. Churches that are only focused outward fail to care for those who are already under their care and suffer for it. So it's got to be both. Biblical church is both public and personal, both grateful and generous, both reverent and reputable, both evangelistic and expanding. Now here's where we need to end with the recognition that you and I in our own strength and our own power will be none of those things. <laughs> this is where we bring it back to the gospel because left to our own devices, you know, just me alone, I just speak personally, me alone, I am sinner enough. You know, Jesus said a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. I got enough sin in me to ruin this whole thing. The whole, the whole church at West Hills. And you do too. Left on our own, we will screw it up like that. The only way we've got a shot of being the kind of biblical, godly, God-honoring model church that he calls us to be, that he died to make us to be, is if we are radically reliant on Jesus. It's got to be his power at work in us. If we try and love one another in our own strength, it'll be a miserable reflection. If we try and love the world with our own, our own love, our own best evangelistic strategies, we will turn them off. I we'll want nothing to do with the church. We've got to be filled with Jesus. It's got to be his light shining in and through us. Church, may we here at West Hills be this kind of a radically God-filled, God-honoring, glorifying church as we are empowered by God's Spirit and as we collectively pursue the Lord one another, uh, with, with one another together as his people.